Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm great. I'm here. It's good to talk to you. Although we're not here in person, we're not in the same place. We're just trying to prepare for what could be the worst of, you know, this COVID strain that's coming out in this more than likely accelerated transmission as a result of the holidays and this new strain. So Derek and I are socially distancing for the foreseeable future, but hopefully that doesn't compromise the quality of what we will be bringing you today. Uh, Right. And hopefully it doesn't distance you from my jokes. It never distances me from your jokes. I'm going to hear, I hear a Derek joke at least once a day. Yeah, man. What say we begin by talking about the events of this week? It's tough. And this is something that's been building since the election, right? All this discontent. At least the election, I want to say. At least the election. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, but the the reaction to the election, it's it's almost like all these Trumpists for two months have been asking to see the manager after they lost. (laughs) Yeah. There was a couple of things that just really threw me off. Okay, that's a lie. I'm not going to say things threw me off. I was not surprised at all by what ended up happening. We had predicted that something like this might happen pretty much since the election of Donald Trump into office. But what I couldn't help but like fixate on was noticing the symbols that people were carrying. Like this isn't just the Capitol, but this is like every Trump rally, every demonstration, every a protest where, you know, MAGA folks and the MAGA adjacent are just chilling. But, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice the symbols that people were carrying around as well at like they were carrying them with the American flag. You know, I saw at the Capitol, I saw thin blue line flags. I saw Trump banner flags. I saw Confederate flags. I saw Gadsden flags. I saw Nazi flags. And among them, I also saw a title of liberty, which has been getting a lot of circulation. Yeah, in the that's Mormon not media. cool. I bring that up to say that all of these are symbols of an America that these people want to live in. And it's not a coincidence that these flags are also symbols of white racial violence. What's kind of funny, kind of funny, is that two of these flags represent causes we literally went to war against, like the Nazi flag and the Confederate flag. We fought a war against these people and these causes. They are carrying thin blue line flags as they push back on police officers. Like, that's how you know these people don't mean blue lives matter. That's how you know that these people are confused. You know, when you brandish the flags of causes that were predicated on... uh, taking away people's autonomy and freedom, and then you wave those flags in the company of the American flag, which is supposed to be a symbol of freedom and justice, you're saying that the America you believe in, the America you want to live in, is somehow in harmony with those causes. And this is why so much of what happened on Wednesday reeked of white supremacy to me, from the flags to the ease with which they got into the building. There was... So much that was simultaneously confusing, but also clear about exactly who these people are, what it is that they believe, and how confused they are about the ideals of America and the ideals of, you know, them as a people. Which brings me to uh, the whole title of liberty thing. Like many members, 
who watched that, I was also disgusted to see someone brandishing our sacred text as a weapon and a rallying cry to commit a treasonous act. The first words of the title of Liberty were what kept standing out to me. It said, like, the first words of the title of Liberty are in memory of our God and our religion, at which point I just had to be like, who is your God and what is your religion if your preferred candidate losing a fair election drives you to commit an act of domestic terrorism? Who is your God and what is your religion if you worry that your position in the status hierarchy is threatened by a multiracial coalition of Americans. Who is your God and what is your religion if the symbols most commonly associated with your cause are all symbols of white racial violence, of white supremacy? This is low-key why I tense up every time I see an American flag outside of a government building. People that wave that flag now seem to me to be declaring their commitment not to America as it ought to be, but an America as they believe it should be, an America that keeps white people in power and that keeps people in, people of color, women, and uh, LGBTQ folks in their place, in their subservient place. And part of the complication with this is some people look at the these terrorists and say, well, that's just an, a, a distortion of American values and American uh, democracy. But, but the is problem it though? is... <laughs> yes, the problem is it's a natural and inevitable outgrowth of the founding of our country on principles of white supremacy. Like if you mm -hmm. look at our constitution, who could vote at the time? Who mm -hmm. was enslaved at the time? Mm -hmm. This is not this that was America and that is America. That's mm -hmm. our heritage. Mm -hmm. And so we have a dream of an America that can be better, but there's a sense in which these terrorists are in in continuity with the history of America. Mm-hmm. This is not really, an accident. Yeah, really yeah. sad. Yeah. And something else that I thought about to go along with, you know, that title of liberty thing, you know a lot of these people claim to be Christians that were at this event. The primary yeah. reason that I'm skeptical of white Christians in general, particularly the ones that are silent or lukewarm in the fight against racial injustices or outright hostile towards them at times is because I don't believe them to be real Christians. When I hear a white person declare their Christianity, I'm immediately on guard. I'm immediately skeptical. They might brandish the name of Christ. They might have temple recommends. They might pass and bless the sacrament. But if they can't see the atrocities against black people and other people in this country, as the closest and well specifically black people i'm going to say this for the time being if they can't say if they can't see the atrocities against black people in this country as the closest analog to the crucified christ they worship if our faith doesn't operate to mitigate racial antagonisms then we are not following the gospel that resulted in the cross like our mm -hmm. gospel in that case is closer to white supremacy than it is to Christ. And that's what I saw on Wednesday was a lot of professed Christians, especially that dude holding the title of Liberty, people whose religion wasn't actually the restored gospel of Jesus Christ or wasn't Christ at all. Their religion was white supremacy. I saw somebody comment on our video over the weekend saying something along the lines of, I don't need anti-racism, I got Jesus. And I just wanted to be like, you don't have Jesus then. You can't have Jesus without anti-racism. You can't right. embrace, like, what do you think your religion is 
if you can embrace Jesus without embracing anti-racism. People out here are really confused, man. And like, I don't know exactly how to feel about it other than the anger I've been feeling about it pretty much since I came to an awareness of the America that I live in. So I'm just gonna continue stewing in that, but also working out my own salvation and working out for a better America in the only way I know how, in the name of Christ. So I don't know, man. White, yeah. white Christianity. I'm, I'm careful about it. It's tough because we've got a major commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before mm-hmm. me. And people put yes, white supremacy before. Now, you don't even need to do my whole enumerate the commandments problem project to know that one, right? Right. People should know that it's one. It's in the 10. It's in the 10. Yep. I'm going to have over 500 commandments once I'm done with this project. It's a big project. but mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about this week. Some people pushed back on me for telling the truth and saying, well, I'm not being Christ-like. Well, first of all, what they happened? don't know what happened? who. It, it's, it's basically about, I don't need to get into the details, but it was about Trump and um, how we approach Trump. And just because I'm not nice, like I'm not supposed to be nice to Nazis, I'm not supposed to be nice to Trumpists. Mm-hmm. Jesus was like Jesus was loving, but he wasn't. He wasn't nice. Mm-hmm. And he he engaged in name calling. He engaged in disturbances. He engaged in actions that made people want to kill him a number of times. Mm-hmm. Right. This is not My Little Pony with little tassels and and sparkles and glitter that's you know cutesy this is mm-hmm. there's no cutesy jesus in the new testament i live and breathe and drink the new testament and they're telling me that what is christ-like and what isn't like so, how are you in a position to do that like for real so the other thing is this gets back to the let's talk about the title of liberty okay scriptures are more often misused than they're used. The title of Liberty, this dude quoting it, yeah, so what, he can quote the scriptures. So can Satan. Like, I'm not, on one level, I'm embarrassed to be named in the same church as this dude, Mm -hmm. but on the other level, I'm not, because I know that that's gonna happen. People are going to take some of the most powerful things in the world, including the scriptures, and use them for evil purposes and twist Mm -hmm. them and that mm-hmm. really makes Jesus mad is when people oh, twist time. the scriptures big to time. oppress other people. Like, how is that not Christ-like? That's kind of all I want. There's more we could say. Like, we could talk about how, y- you know you're bad when you get when you get banned from tw- Twitter and Facebook. He was banned or restricted from, like, it looks like a dozen network uh, social media platforms. And uh, I, saw, I thought it was really funny that Google was among those listed here. And I was just like, you don't have to worry about Google. I don't think President Trump uses Google. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Not a lot of people. I got jokes too, Derek. You ain't the only funny man here. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's it's wild, man. The whole thing is wild. And I think we've said everything that we got to. So if there's nothing else, we can go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me. But before we go ahead and do that, Wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. 
That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. All right, so this week we are in Joseph Smith history. What are these verses? 20, 27 through 65, as well as Doctrine and Covenants, section 2. Derek, would you be so kind as to give us some context for these verses? Well, what we've got is Joseph recounting his history, mostly centering on the visitation of Moroni and the discovery of the plates. We had the first vision last time. Now it's Moroni. And then we have section two of the DNC, which is just a quotation of Moroni's message, part of Moroni's message to Joseph. And Joseph was 17 at this time. Remember, like, God's trusting a 17-year-old. God's, got you know, going to challenge some things. So there's this part in verse 28 where Joseph Smith basically acknowledges that he was less than perfect in the three years that transpired between him receiving the first vision. And it's one of the things that makes me like have respect for Joseph Smith as a man was simply the fact that he was able to essentially look at his own person and say, I was called of God, but also I did some things that weren't all that great or weren't really befitting of a prophet of God. And I feel like we kind of just gloss over this as if to not acknowledge that even the prophets that we got now or whatever leaders in the church that we did have, they are still very much capable right, right. of not acting in a way that is befitting of a prophet or a leader, period. I want to jump back to something earlier in verse 28. All right. And notice his vulnerability. He says, being of very tender years, right? He was 14 at the time of the first vision. He's 17 at this time. He said, and being of very tender years and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends mm. and to have treated me kindly. Yes, this sir. is exactly what LGBTQ kids go through and and adults too, but especially kids. Like the people mm-hmm. that you depend on, the people that you trust, the people who form your whole world, those are the ones that you should be able to go to. Right. And right. so many of us are rejected by our families, by the people we thought would know us the best and love us the most. Mm-hmm. Ends up end up being the ones that hurt us the most. It really and so we should always people. remember yeah. We should always remember this, like, look at how Joseph felt when people he loved, hopefully, you know, eventually his family got, you know, loved him, and and, and we'll get to this later, when his father believed his testimony, but we need to just pause there and realize how tragic it is when people are abandoned at their time of most need by the Mm -hmm. people who should love them the most. Mm Mm-hmm. In moments of like this extreme vulnerability and authenticity, I can only imagine how devastating it is. Well, I, I mean, this isn't my community, but I do know what it's like when people listen to you relate your own experience and then they regard you with an increasing mm-hmm. like extreme contempt. Like they will talk about your experience as if they know it better than you better than you do or talk about you like you crazy and don't know what your own experience was. That's a very painful thing to have to deal with. And I can only imagine what that would be like for somebody who is, you know, part of the LGBTQ community trying to tell their truth. And then all these other folks telling them that they're wrong. It just, yeah, it just sounds terrible. 
But uh, I want to go to uh, verse 29. And one thing that I noticed here was that Joseph's vision that is talked about in here, or I guess in the later verses with Moroni, is that uh, his vision came as a result of him seeking forgiveness and having full confidence in obtaining a divine manifestation as he previously had one, is what's written here. And I just wanted to point out uh, the fact that, first of all, in the act of receiving forgiveness or seeking forgiveness, Joseph was able to receive a vision. And secondly, Joseph's confidence. Granted, that confidence came from a previous experience where he had a divine manifestation, but even still, this teaches us two things. One is that strong faith can literally cause miracles like divine visions. And secondly, our previous experiences with God can be a source of strength for us in periods of uh, weakness for us. And this yeah, was a period a really of weakness. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate that. It's one of the reasons I journal, honestly. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. really come to a realization of how wonderful this blessing was until after I got home from my mission. And let me tell you, in moments of weakness, my mission journal was something that blessed me a ton. I was able to see the person that I was, the miracles that I've experienced seemingly almost every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a source of great strength for me in some of my lowest moments post-mission. So uh, I definitely want to you know, add my witness to the power of being able to remember you know, your previous experience with God or relying on those experiences uh, in moments of darkness. Yeah, I wanna say two things. This vision of Moroni was prompted by a concrete ask of the Lord. It wasn't that God came out of nowhere, Moroni came out of nowhere and just dumped something on someone. It was something on the ground led someone to bring it to God, not knowing exactly how it would go, right? We love to think of Joseph as like the prophet, and but at this time, he probably didn't even have a complete sense of his call. And so here we've got someone who may or may not understand that he's a prophet, may or may not understand exactly what he's doing with God, but reaching out to God anyway because of a basic grounded trust in God. And I think that's what we all should do. I think the model Mm -hmm. of Joseph isn't like, oh, he did it so we don't have to. It's he did it so now you know how to. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And let's talk a little bit about why God picked a sinner to be the means through which God restored the gospel. Okay, okay. And I think there, there's some theology behind that. I think that if, what it does is it leads us to not worship the messenger, because that is, if, if God had picked someone who was glorious and splendid and successful in the ways of the world and obviously righteous and well-equipped and everything, you know, Joseph wasn't any of those things. He was poor, he made a lot of mistakes, as he said, he wasn't very educated, and that's who God picked. Mm-hmm. And I think part of this is to separate the messenger from the message. Like, I think God's point is, yeah, it's not about Joseph. It's right. not about him at all. It's like Joseph was a an instrument and a means to accomplish something that will bring about Christ, and God could have used some other means, right? So it's yeah. not, this is not the church of Joseph Smith. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And this, the, this really sets up people for some fragility when they learn about some of Joseph's frailties before or after this. And I don't want to do like this apologetic twist and like you know, like push them under the rug because there's some real things there. But I do want to say that Joseph has passed the baton onto us. 
Mm-hmm. And he's gone now. This isn't his church. This church is not based on Joseph Smith. It is not founded on Joseph Smith. This char- church is not about Joseph Smith. And this isn't defined by Joseph what Smith did. And it's not limited by the knowledge that Joseph was able to acquire in his lifetime. Right. It is the church of the living Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to, where we want to take it now. Absolutely. It is totally up to us to discern what God's will is for us now and and act on it and, and get new and fresh revelation on questions that Joseph never even asked. Mm, big and time. this is the LGBT question. This is the question on women. This is a question on black folks. There's room and not only room, but that's expected for us to grow mm-hmm. into something that Joseph may have never completed or never imagined. Mm. I was actually just talking to somebody about this last night, about how when DNC 132 was written, that uh, sexual orientation as a concept didn't even exist when Joseph Smith was alive. This is going to be something that happens for as long as we're on this earth. The restoration will continue to unfold. And that gets back to the point of the people prompt the prophets. There was no instigating occasion that would have given rise to this question for Joseph. So, so how can you even use that as a precedent? You just can't. Like, yeah, yeah. That's the whole point of this ongoing restoration. And our leaders have been saying for a generation, and even President Nelson recently said, this restoration isn't finished. It is ongoing. It's still unfolding. It's still rolling out. And that gets us to what's in verse 34. It says that Moroni said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was taint contained in it, meaning the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, Can you say more about what that means? And so, when you look at it in context, what's in the Book of Mormon? Well, we don't have an explicit teaching of the sealing of families. We don't have an explicit temple theology. We don't have an, you know, all the stuff that got unfolded after the Kirtland period or during, you know, we don't have that in the Book of Mormon. So, what does it mean to have the fullness of the gospel if Mm -hmm. so much of our teaching and knowledge isn't even in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And yeah. the way I see it is that the fullness of the gospel is a fullness of relationship, not a fullness of information. That is, we're fully in covenant with God, that we're fully invested in God, and God's fully invested in us on the journey. Mm. That we haven't arrived at the journey, but God, like leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, into the Promised Land, that was a fullness the whole time because God was present with them, present with them in the tabernacle, leading them, guiding them, giving them. Re- That's fullness to me. Okay. So much of a faith crisis is really a crisis of expectations. Like if you're expecting mm. a thing and then mm. it falls apart. Yeah. That's what leads to some some difficulties. Yes, sir. So any other questions? Because I know you wanted me to talk about it. Did I say kind of what you wanted to, me to cover? So, like, when he says the fullness being contained in the Book of Mormon, what does the Book of Mormon offer us? And I assume in your answer that what the Book of Mormon is actually offering us is a fullness of relationship. It was the keystone of that relationship that was able to be born Mm -hmm. of this restoration. That is what is is contained in the Book of Mormon, is the greatest witness of the fullness of our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Do I understand that correctly? Right, and we had truths existing in the Bible and in the Christian world before 1830. Yes, sir. And I don't want to say anything bad about these other 
churches, but what they didn't have was the fullness of the covenantal relationship with ordinances, with temples, with mm-hmm. all of the, I guess what I would call technology of salvation that we have today. Right. Got you. All right. Yeah, that is what I needed to know. That is what I needed to hear. Thank you for sharing that, Derek. Um, last thing I want to discuss in uh, the history is something that actually occurs in a few verses, but is really highlighted in verse 47, the strangeness of what Joseph Smith had just experienced. And what he had just experienced was Moroni appearing into his room, quoting Malachi 4, quoting Malachi 4, and then leaving him and then doing it two more times. Basically, Moroni repeated the same vision three times in one night. And I just wanted to see if you had anything, uh, that you thought would be worth saying about this experience? Like why might Moroni have done this? Or what is the significance of Moroni giving him the exact same vision three times? Because what came to my mind was when Peter received the exact same vision Mm -hmm. three times. And uh, I don't really have a great answer for why this happened other than perhaps the Lord wanting to really drill into the mind of the person receiving the revelation how important what he was receiving was but, you know, perhaps there's more to it than that. Yeah. Well, in the context of Peter in Acts chapter 10, I, I also thought of this as well. Okay. With the, um, why was it repeated three times? And with Peter, it was because he was primed not to believe it. It had yeah. gone contrary to not just everything he knew, but everything that God's people knew for a thousand years years mm-hmm. like people say well we can't overturn something that's been here for a thousand years oh yeah we can so there was no provision for gentiles to be included in god's people mm-hmm. and remain gentiles obviously you could have converts but there was no way of including gentiles on their own terms in the covenant right until until this time until a gentile cornelius was the first to realize it right and yes. not even Jesus, not even Jesus fully completed the inclusion of the Gentiles during his mortal ministry, right? Very interesting. People, which means how can you expect even, how can you expect Joseph to do that? If, if you know, how can you expect Joseph to understand queer people and trans people and complete that if when Jesus didn't even complete the fullness of uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles in his own life, he left that mm. for someone else. Mm-hmm. Of course, God's going to leave, you know, G- Joseph left things for other people and, and future generations when occasioned by the concrete on the ground situation to take it to the Lord and get a fresh understanding with more light and more understanding. Mm. And uh, speaking of that, I want to talk, go back to verse 50, where we have this marvelous of example of allyship from Joseph Sr. So here's Joseph's father. So Joseph went out, Moroni told Joseph to come out, basically come out to his father, right? He probably was afraid. He didn't know whether his father would accept him or not, but Moroni told him to go and do it. And then Joseph Jr. says, I returned to my father in the field and rehearsed the whole matter to him. He replied to me that it was of God, and he told me to go and do as commanded by the messenger. I think that's really interesting that Joseph Mm. Sr. believed his son, learned from his son, ended up getting baptized by his son, joining the church of his son, and really looking at the lead of his son and saying, look, 
so here you've got a good example of the hearts of the father turning the heart to the hearts of the the children, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what happens with LGBTQ folks, especially trans kids. There's a oh, lot yeah. of parents that are prompted by their trans kid to learn a whole bunch that they didn't know the week before their their kid came out, right? Yeah, yeah. And we and we need to be willing to make room for that to say, look, parents aren't going to know everything, but one primary covenantal obligation that's in the proclamation on the family that everyone loves to cite for only one reason, but it's there is to take care of your kids, not to be abusive to them, to support them and love them and, and encourage them and, and be good parents. Like, and being a good parent is being not a transphobe or a homophobe. It's the exact opposite of those things. Mm. So that's kind of what I wanted to say. We can learn from Joseph Sr. about having some humility about when your kids tell you something that's going to shake up your whole world. Definitely. Great, great observation. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing it. I don't think I can add anything to it, so I'm going to just move on. Uh, is it cool if we go to uh, DNC 2, or do you have anything else you want to uh, cite in the history for this week's passage? Yes, there's one thing I wanted to say from verse 41, and there's... I should probably do an extended study of all the texts that Moroni cites, but most of the ones that Moroni cites are in service of this idea of the unfolding or inauguration of the restoration. All of these texts are prophecies of a restoration, prophecies of a returning, prophecies of something breaking into the world in a new way. And so Mm -hmm. that's what Moroni is explaining. is like, Joseph, here's the thing that we've been talking about, the restoration of all things. The return of these visions. That's what that's the, the context behind why Moroni is quoting all of these things from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I want to go into verse 41, where Joseph mentions that Moroni quotes from Joel verse two, uh, chapter two, verse twenty-eight. And this is the verse that says, And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Now Let's talk about this English phrase, sons and daughters, because a lot of people assume that maybe the translators made it gender inclusive, whereas like originally it says, you know, people who do this all the time, especially our church leaders, they'll say men and women when when originally it was men, right? They want to add the, but I want to say that in the Hebrew text, the word for daughters is there, banot. It literally says sons in Hebrew and the word in Hebrew for daughters. The daughters are there. They've been there all along. And what does it say? Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, which means an essential ingredient for the unfolding of the restoration. And a sign of a of the true restoration is the existence of women prophets. Let me say that again. If Moroni is quoting Joel 2.28 as an explicit promise of the restoration of all things, we're going to have women prophets. Mm, Shoot, we already have a few right now. And uh, yeah, right. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the future of the church is going to look like. I don't know if you know this, Derek, but um, something that I've been thinking about a lot more, and I guess this is a product of me finally finishing. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the women's session, a conference over the course of the last week, and I got to President Eyring's talk. And this has kind of been hinted at throughout the whole conference. But President Eyring really talked a lot about the role of women in, you know, 
these latter days and how basically how they're going to basically put the team on their back. I couldn't really disagree with him there because I was looking at the percentage of active membership of the church. Like I only have my singles wards here to like look at, but the majority of active membership is female. Like uh, the majority of people who are like doing this work is female. I look at our followers and our listeners by demographic and uh, an overwhelming majority and a conservative estimate of our followers and listeners are about 80% female. So I'm just oh, like, really? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah, dude. So just I'm looking at people who are going to be doing the hardest parts of this work and leading it. And I'm just like, it looks very female. And I think the sooner we embrace that, the sooner we're all going to be for it. And the last conversation I was having with somebody, this was a conversation on gender complementarity, which is frequently used as an argument f- against uh, full LGBTQ inclusion. But you also mm-hmm. have to consider that uh, the way our society has treated women has kind of put them in this position where they have to develop a certain resilience that allows them to remain here and do this work without so much entitlement that perhaps straight men are liable to have as a result of their membership in this church that seems to cater to their interests. So I don't think it's any coincidence that the majority of people who follow a podcast that is designed to center the marginalized in Mormonism, I don't think it's any coincidence that 80% of them are women. When you consider what our church looks like in terms of the activity levels, who's using their temple recommends, who's attending and who's doing the most work, again, with the exception of male leadership, it's very female very female so um yeah daughters are going to be prophesying and uh, they're going to be doing a lot more than that as our church becomes more of what it is supposed to become yeah and i think i have two things to say about that one is yes we already see women with clear prophetic gifts and clear callings from god shout out to reverend dr fatima yeah but we don't really see is women in institutional positions that are that allow them to receive revelation for the whole church and in decision making roles there's we do have women in leadership roles but they always they always end up answering to a man and the man can overrule them at any time see that mm-hmm. i have a problem with that mm-hmm. and our women's officers are not lifetime callings Right. They uh they they can be dispensed with if if they don't do something right, you know. So I think we're not all the way there yet with women. We're in not. The church. But like it's only a matter of time before we see how important they are to our like there's this joke that's told in the black church a bunch, like how men may lead the church but the women fill the pews. Like if women didn't show mm. up to church, we wouldn't have a church. Like, at all. You know, you can say whatever you want to about how the church is patriarchally structured and how it could technically function without women, which is, you know, sad in and of itself. But even still, without women, we are simply not going to have a church. We're just not going to have one. And it's only a matter of time before the church fully realizes that in such a way where we'll have no choice but to more fully include women in administrative capacities and priesthood capacities. And I am really anxious to see mm-hmm. that day. Yeah, and it's tough because part of what we've learned from feminists is that women already do a lot of unpaid and unseen labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't just take it, it, advantage of that and exploit that. We really need to let women 
take ownership of what it is that they're called to do and what it is that they're going to do mm-hmm. and listen to women and believe women. I'm not an expert on women, right? I, let me just put that out there so I'm probably saying <laughs> something wrong. Yeah. But what I mean, what the, the most important thing is to defer to the leadership and expertise of, of women on these things. Like right. what what are women seeking? What do women feel prompted to ask for? And, and then what's going on with that and how can we um how can we just get on board with what what's already being done among women and and magnify that rather mm-hmm. than trying to oppose it or squelch it or something like that mm. so yeah let's get into doctrine and covenants 2 yeah let's get into 2 i didn't want to say i mean this is already a short section but i just wanted to talk about uh you know, what we typically understand in these verses. This is a this is the angel Moroni quoting uh, Malachi to Joseph Smith. And we typically understand these verses in the context of family history work. And that's definitely a part of it. We read, quote unquote, the fathers, and we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in them. And that we are the children either literally or by adoption. The promises are typically understood to be a continuation of the family unit into eternity. Again, this is typically how we read Malachi and uh, DNC 2. But there's another read here that is highlighted by Joseph Fielding Smith that I think is worth bringing out. Uh, I don't get to hear this a ton in church, but I think it's important to bring out where the fathers are our literal ancestors who died without receiving the gospel, but nonetheless received the promise that the privilege would be granted to them and planting in our hearts the promises of, or sorry, planting in our hearts the promises to our fathers seems to be an appropriate read of turning our hearts to them in this context because both encourage us to honor our ancestors by doing or finishing the the work that they weren't able to do or finish. This verse stood out a lot to me because uh, just of w- just of what I'm going through right now and, you know, applying to schools and in trying to do what I can to honor my literal and my spiritual ancestors in the black community. I talked about it on the show a few episodes ago, but I, I've been feeling, I don't know how to describe it, but a real pressure or anxiety or a- urgency to honor the suffering and sacrifices of my ancestors, though not just or primarily through temple work. Part, part of what I'm doing with this show and part of what I, why I wanted to start it was, uh, you know, I wanted to engage in that effort to fulfill the promise, that particular promise that the cross gave my ancestors, that the humiliation, the dehumanization, and their eventual death would not have the last laugh, nor would that suffering or humiliation be in vain. There would be purpose in all of it that would be realized to a greater degree, if not fully, in our generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, my responsibility is to make that a reality, is to make sure that I'm doing my part to make that a reality. That's how I honor that. My desire to live my life in such a way that honors the suffering and sacrifices that black people made, that I might live as I do, I believe is a fulfillment of this prophecy because my heart is turned to the fathers. My, the Mm -hmm. promises of the promises that God made to them, the promises of the cross, they 
beat very strongly in my heart and I seek to fulfill those for them through this work that we do among among other things. So uh, that is a pers- a very personal way that I've read into this prophecy. That reminds me that one of the one of the big and major purposes of religion is the exercise of meaning making about mm. making meaning out of suffering, right? And that happens in all sorts of ways, some responsible, some maybe irresponsible, but it but a lot of people will will make meaning out of these things. And I want to go back and talk about we usually talk see about the hearts of the fathers turning to the children and the and the children to their fathers. But here Moroni changes it to talk about the promises made to the fathers, which al- seems to almost imply that it's not your own one generation, your own literal father, but the but the but the patriarchs, right? And uh, those are the ones who received the promises, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received. The, and I shouldn't leave out the matriarchs either. Like Sarah received promises as well. And and but anyway, so. I'm really touched by something I've learned from the rabbis on Exodus 3, verse 6. This is where God is calling Moses, and Moses is like, yo, who dis? And because <laughs> he didn't know which God it was who was, who was calling him. And um, is it appropriation if I say who dis? <laughs> I think you're safe, Derek. Okay. So um, Moses said you know like what who who is this and and um didn't know who it was and and god said i am the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob and this is in like i said in exodus 3 6 and it's and the rabbis have pointed out that it's elohe avraham elohe yitzhak the elohe yaakov the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that God is repeated three times. It doesn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a different God each time. And what the rabbis have pointed out is that the relationship between God and each of those is distinct and different. And that's why the God of Abraham is different from the God of Isaac, which is different from the God of Jacob. And I think the same thing true is like, what about the God of Joseph Smith versus the God of Derek, right? Mm. There's gonna be a different relationship there. And so I think there's the the promises that are made to the fathers now um, get fulfilled with this ongoing relationship, a a different relationship, right? And so that's kind of what I wanna point out again, that we're not limited by what Joseph did or what he didn't do or didn't get to do. I don't have anything to add to that. Is there anything else you want to highlight in these passages before we uh, wrap up here, sir? Let me just, speaking of, of turning the hearts of the children to the fathers, I've been enumerating the commandments, and there's one commandment that a lot of people might not know about. Okay. And it's in Colossians 3, verse 21. It says, parents, do not provoke your children lest they become dis- disheartened or discouraged. That's my translation. So. Okay. Parents have an obligation not to mess up their children's life, not to cause them to be discouraged or disheartened or give up. And I think that's what a lot of parents do to their LGBTQ kids is cause them to be provoked and to be disheartened and discouraged and give up. And like that is a commandment is do not mess up your LGBT kids like that is a commandment. 
people talk all along. Are you are you keeping the commandments? Are you keeping the commandments? And they have a list of like six or seven in their head, like word of wisdom, tithing, chastity, church attendance, maybe, um, you know, I don't know. But they don't really think of all these commandments that are there that are about how we live with one another and how we maximize the infiltration of God's reign into this world. And that's why I'm doing this this commandment project. Like I'm I'm people are going to think I'm weird for this uh commandment <laughs> project. Like why do you want to list out these because there's all these commandments that are there that we just don't think about. Right. And I, sometimes I struggle with some of these and like I'm enumerating the commandments and I'm looking up things like pray for your enemies. I'm like, "Whoops. Now I'm <laughs> I'm real convicted about that." I mean, I pray for my enemies sometimes, but it's not a way of life for me. It's something that I do when I think about it and remember it and mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to to love our enemies. And I just want to put in a plug for praying for your enemies is actually a good tool for self-care. Like if you are really disturbed by by someone and hurting because of them, praying for them is a way of putting them in their place and a way of hmm. taking the sting out of what they're doing. At least this is how it works for me. It may okay. not work for other people, but it's a way of really focusing on God and not on the other person and it it takes the bite out of whatever they did and it helps me not to take it personally and in some ways triumph over them by by uh going high when they go low you don't like Michelle Obama I love Michelle Obama but you know the more I hear that phrase the more I do not like it I'm just like Nah, I, I'm ready to knock some fools out, man. Like, <laughs> going high, black people have been trying that for a long time. It's not working fast enough, Michelle. I love you, Michelle, but it ain't working like that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things where I'm just like, th- this is another thing. This is a little bit off topic, but I just, anytime people want to be critical, especially anytime white people in particular are critical of movements like Black Lives Matter, or even the organization itself, I want to be like, you don't get to be critical of this. You really don't. 400 years, we've been at this mess. Black Lives Matter is not even plan A. This is like plan Q or R. You know what I'm saying? Just we've been mm-hmm. you, you, like, we're still doing this and having this conversation because you haven't figured out how to extend to us the fullness of the humanity we're entitled to. You don't get to have an opinion on how we fight our oppression. We know better than you. We've been fighting this longer than you. We've been blacker longer than you. And, you know, anytime I hear somebody say, go high rather than go low, I'm just like, you don't get to tell me that. Michelle Obama. Right. I don't, oh. I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree with Michelle. They go low. I reserve the right to also go low. And you don't get to say anything about it. That's how I feel. Right, and I think that's part of... Now, I obviously wasn't implying what other people should do. I'm saying what works for me. What works for you, yes. You are yes. much... And I'll say this, Derek. You are a much better man in this regard than I am. You are a lot more patient with haters than I am. I come straight out the gate with the name-calling and the insulting of the intelligence. You give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you're, you're just better at that kind of thing, and I, and I admire you for it. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. I admire you begrudgingly for it, but I do admire <laughs> you for it. And I think there's there's a there's room for the whole good cop bad cop thing, right? Like mm-hmm. doing my thing by itself wouldn't be as uh, powerful as 
having different avenues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like maybe say, well, I better talk to Derek or else I'll get James. Like maybe that will work for some people, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, and I right. wouldn't be able to, right? And people wouldn't talk to me otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I made you laugh, by the way. You did, because I know how right you are. Like, I know there are people specifically who have sought your counsel because they know whatever I'm going to say is going to hurt their feelings. Very wise. Very wise on their part. But I'm just like, that is something I'm very aware of. People know that when they come to me, they could get their feelings hurt. And uh, (laughs) I'm not proud of that, but it is what it is. I just don't have the energy to put sugar on your truth. I am sorry. Anyway, um, if that's all... We can go to the housekeeping items. Is there anything else? No, other than, I don't know if I said this last week, but in some ways the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is a coming out of the closet, right? That you had. Yes. Okay. You had the Book of Mormon and the gospel and the church in in waiting, you know, waiting patiently for centuries to be able to come out into the light and when you when there's coming out there's more light and truth see that it's not just like a joke about coming out of the Kimura closet it really is once people come out there's more light and truth in the world because people understand and people say oh this is who you really are so i want to encourage people that coming out is a sacred act Mm -hmm. and not to be uh not to be afraid of it. Let me tell you all about Derek real quick. Sometimes he will show up to pre-production meetings for this podcast. And he'll be like, James, I don't, I don't know if I have a lot to say. Like, I don't know how long this episode is going to be. Like, I didn't prepare very much. And then those will end up being some of our longest episodes. Because Derek will just stay vomiting doctrine and, <laughs> and poetry just off the top of his head. Like, it, I'm low-key kind of jealous of it. Because, like, he just straight up shows up saying he's unprepared. And then spout some of the most poetic and powerful truths I've ever heard in my life. And I'm just over here with my notes that I spent like hours on. Be like, uh, God is good. Yeah, that's a that's a whole thing. And uh, No, Derek, no, don't, don't <laughs> underestimate yourself. Like, I, I appreciate yeah. that, Derek, but I just got to let you know and let these folks know that the depth of what you are capable of and the depth of your actual knowledge and the poetry that is in you is still something that I, as one of your closer friends, have not even scratched the surface of. And that simultaneously excites and frightens me. And, like, Mm -hmm. y'all think Derek is, like, out here just... I mean, like, I get this impression of you when I talk to you, but I need to let people know that are just sitting at home listening to this, whatever they're doing. Derek is literally like this 100% of the time. There's, like, no off switch on this dude. This is who he is. <laughs> this is literally what he does for fun and for his profession. He just be, he, he, he oh, just yeah. be in the, he, he, he be in the stuff. He oh, that is? In the stuff. Oh, now, now you've really called me out here because now I'm re- recalling all these, like, other people would be sitting around innocently eating ice cream and, you know, talking about nothing important. And then I'll say, did you know that ice cream reminds me of this scripture that says, you know, <laughs> and, then, like, and then I'll come out here and like people aren't ready for that. I'm like, oh, okay. No, like these but, are my favorite Derek, like, pre, like, what, what what's the word? Like the, not the, an, is it the antecedent, the thing that comes before the thing? Yeah. Okay. One, two of my favorite antecedents from Derek is did you know and I have a theory like you know you're about to get into some heavy Derek stuff (laughs) if he says either of those phrases prior to a sentence Um, (laughs) we literally just been talking for the last 15 minutes (laughs) is there anything else in this text we want to talk about nope that's that's all I wanted to talk about all right cool let's wrap this ish up real quick Um, 
Before we get to the housekeeping items, I want to remind you all that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Sorry, Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. iTunes ain't a thing anymore. I need to get used to that. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Unlike Trump, you can't find him there anymore. Ooh! 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 Derek, with the jokes and the roast. I am here for it. So you can find us on... On Facebook. (laughs) Now, you better not be telling me that I'm not funny anymore. (laughs) I never say that you're not funny, Derek. I've never said that you're not funny. (laughs) Say your jokes aren't funny, but that one was hilarious. (laughs) Okay, so you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Yes, yes. And um, do we have any events coming up, Derek? Now, the Black LDS Legacy, do we have a date on that? Yes. The date for that is uh, February 20th. It will be a virtual event. Um, I don't think they sent out a link or anything or any further details about who is going to be doing what there, but we do have a date, February 20th. Okay. Oh, and last thing, just wanted to uh, let you guys know, people working behind the scenes, David Doyle for doing our transcripts, Eden Wynn for doing our social media, Tamara Kemsley for handling our audio editing. Special thanks to them as well as our collaborators. Uh, If you guys want to support the show, throw some coins at it. Uh, You can go to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That is G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. You guys saw that we're creating new content in the new year. We've released some merch. You can guys check out our uh, shop online. We do have a link to it on our website. You can get yourself one of these newly released Comfort the Afflicted and Afflict the Comfortable t-shirts, tanks, or hoodies. So uh, definitely hop on that. And uh, like I said, we've also, we also started creating some new content. We dropped our first video on New Year's Day. Oh, that's Hopefully. a good video. Everyone should go look, watch, and share that video. Yes, and we're hoping to create more of those. But basically, thanks to the collaborators, we were able to make content like that. So uh, stay on the lookout for more of those videos. Be on the lookout for perhaps more merchandise. And if you do get into the collaborator community, you can join our Facebook group, see what else we're cooking up in terms of episodes, merch ideas, video ideas, bonus episode ideas, like just whatever you guys got. We would be more than happy to hear from you in, in that space. With that, we will... See you guys next week. Thank you for tuning in. Yeah, see you next week. I look forward to it.